I think this is such a rarity these days, just to come to a website and feel like, oh, they actually respect me. Because we usually just throw things at people without even considering them, from newsletters to pop-ups to everything. I think once you do that, once you actually get to the point where somebody feels valued, oh, they will move mountains for you. What's up, everybody? My guest for today is someone I met on the road, on the stage. He's a super funny guy. I, I kind of think of him as the maybe the European Dr. Evil. He's got a wicked <laughs> sense of humor and he's a super experienced person. He's done so many different things. His name is Vitaly. Interesting name just to begin with. So Vitaly, for people who don't know who you are, please introduce yourself and tell us a little story about the quirkiness, the, the human that's in front of me right now. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Chris. Well, I've never been called evil on like... <laughs> no, not evil. Like you're, you're That's a, I know, it's like, yeah, yeah. So I think there is a bit of connection right there, indeed. So, yeah. um, dear friends, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I would say that my life has been full of surprises. I've been torn between so many different things. I think it all started somewhere in 1999, remember? No, maybe you don't remember, mm. you're too young. Maybe. <laughs> so I was doing all this shockwave stuff and before Flash even existed. And then I got all the way into web design. Web design was so exciting. Web design, web designer. We're not web designers anymore. We are product designers now. We're not web designers. And so, yeah, I got to the point where I actually just was doing stuff for the web. And then um, I was so obsessed. Like the moment I saw CSS and uh, I could do a bit of stuff around the you know, design. I was just incredibly excited. And basically we ended up then creating a magazine in 2006 because it's called Smasher Magazine, which was basically for me a way of just bookmarking things that I was basically needing for my work. I was working in an agency for a while and then books and then conferences and then workshops and then more design stuff. And then I got torn between front end and design and performance and accessibility and then moving back to UX and then research. And then what the hell am I supposed to know to do now? And I lost and then COVID and then everything, everything just got mixed up. And then here we go. Mm. We're meeting here today. <laughs> well, there, there is a point of intersection here that is, is kind of funny and interesting. We're both backstage. We're at awards. I forget which awards it was, but it seems like a gazillion million years ago, pre-COVID, and the world has turned upside down. It's kind of neat that we're kind of reconnected here. And there's something that, you, that people aren't going to understand right away. You, you have a way of speaking and presenting information that's a little bit dry, but just like with that um, sarcasm and then you present mm. things and you you go deep into the crevices of the internet. I was re-watching one of your talks where you're, uh, I think it's called uh, something about bringing back personality to the web. And you just talked about all the horrors of the internet and the way that your brain works and the way that you talk about this stuff, it's hilarious to me. You're like, so who thought of this form? Like, um, do you have any children? And there's a slider like, who thinks of these things? And, and all these usability issues. Tell me a little bit about your observations as a person who's pretty much grown up with the web and has been shaping it for so long. Why do these things keep you up at night? Yeah, I think, you know, you know, Chris, this has been very interesting because I asked my question, I asked the question myself as well. And I think in many ways I got so, you know, when I was growing up with the web somehow, you know, I'm maybe one of the few people who happen to be listening to this who remember the time before the internet even existed. And for me, the internet was magical. It was literally magical. I felt like I, I can, wow, the, wow, this is just a, an incredible change in thing and life and everything. It was like, there was a moment before, there was a moment after. There are, of course, a few moments like that in everybody's life. But for me, this really, like, truly felt so magical in so many different ways. And I just paid attention to little fine things, like those HTML things. What, you know, <laughs> this, what can you do? Like, wow, this is like magic. I, I can just do right things in my notepad text editor. And then it's H1. It's actually, it's, it, actually it, it actually appears in the browser. So I got super excited very early on and I got really this, oh, wow, this is how it's working. And then as time passed by, I, I got... I got to the point where I was just really more curious about not just like the technical stuff, but more about the usability, accessibility of things. And I got to the point where I struggled with things. I, I had like, I had a feeling that I have this really like a magical power. 
And the magical power is the my, I mean, everybody has one. I'm sure that you, Chris, have a lot of those. For me, it's, I can feel if something isn't right. Mm. I just feel, I cannot tell necessarily that is, you know, how to fix it, but I can tell, oh, something is not right here. And I would go and I would just bring like five, 10 people in and I say, are they struggling as well? And very often and more often than not, they would struggle as well. And then I realized maybe that's not just me. You know, of course, my mom told me always when I was growing up that I'm special, but I'm not that special. You know, I'm just, I'm just kind of channeling the problems that many people are experiencing as well. I'm just extremely average. And that is my superpower because I can be <laughs> feeling really well what other people are experiencing, what their problems, what their troubles are. Right. And so that got me to this point where I actually started paying more and more attention to the point that right now, like with COVID and all, like, We've basically been uh, working on this big project with the European Parliament, where the big ambition is to bring a lot of the different presences that they have, a lot of different websites into one. And this is where I can also bring all of those little insights about, oh, we shouldn't do it this way. Oh, we should do filters that way. Oh, we should be adjusting search over here this way. And I'm really, really happy and very honored to be working on projects of that scale. Right. But indeed, this has been, I guess, my journey. I... I can speak for hours, and I'm not joking at this point, I can speak for hours about accordions and really nice, beautiful, complex data grids and mm, enterprise dashboards. Oh, that's... Oh, Talk to me, baby. Yeah, we, we, can t we can talk about those things forever. Like we can, <laughs> we can just create a set up a fireplace, you know. Like if, you know it's, it's also funny, Chris, um, I think I'm, I'm speaking too much, but it's still funny because I, for a while, I decided that I'm going to do this little tradition of mine, set up a new tradition. I'm going to do like, you know, people have book clubs where they get together and they kind of review books. I'm going to do website clubs, like where we're going to just get together and then we're going to decide, let's go to Turkish railway system websites for Friday night, because why not? And then we're going to review and discuss together, explore patterns. What is it doing differently? How are things different there? What do they do with carousels? Do they use, also use hamburger menus? How does it all work, right? That's, uh, that's a lot of fun. And then you really start paying attention. And I think the most remarkable point of your career gets to you when you realize you are accidentally stumbling upon South Korean postal service websites. This is, this is probably the peak of your career once you achieve that. <laughs> okay. Before our audience runs for the door and unplugs their podcast, hold on. We're going to talk about some meaty things. But you're getting a little sense of the personality behind the person. I think we're going to have a lot of fun today. I know one of the big things I want to talk to you about, but maybe we don't open there, about measuring the impact of web design. Okay. We'll put that aside. We're going to put that aside because I want to end there. That's the tease for you to hang around with us. What are the, some of the things that you're super excited to talk about? And let's let's pick two of those things and let's go there first before we get to the thing that I want to talk about. Sure. I think, you know, I always like to find challenges. So for this last year, I think I got extremely excited trying to find ways to how to improve experiences for uh, in scenarios where, which, in which I'm usually was not involved in or which I usually haven't even considered closely. For example, one of the things that really was interesting for me is to how do we design better uh, in terms of inclusive design and universal design accessibility and so on for specific groups of people. For example, one of the things that was really, really like almost like a rabbit hole for me is how do you design better for older adults? Right. And then how do you design better for children? Just because very often when you look at, uh, you know, groups like uh, different age groups, you'll find remarkable differences in how we're designing. And I think that if you look at uh, kind of these areas, you really start realizing that many things that we are taking for granted, right? Maybe many things that we kind of accept as reality, they're just not true. Like in many ways, what you find is that uh, when you think about, let's say, older adults, you probably have a number in your mind, like what age that is, right? And obviously everybody will have a different number at which point you become an older adult and whatnot. But what we don't talk about is that actually when you speak about older adults, there are massive differences of people between 55, 60, 65, 70, and so on. Huge differences. You have to design entirely different depending on you know, what you're dealing with there. And then of course there are certain things that are more likely and less likely. And of course we often think about Maybe like the stereotype, like not very active, 
problems with technology, those kind of things, which are not true at all. There are, of course, people who have problems with technology, and there are, of course, people who are slightly kind of experiencing uh, issues. But very often they're going to be extremely active, for example, and they're going to be extremely savvy because they grew up with technology. So we have a lot of stereotypes that goes for very different areas. So that was like a huge rabbit hole to the point that I started looking into academic papers uh, around just, just uh, you know, how people of different age deal in life, with work in life. It's like, it's been a huge rabbit hole, right? Um, uh, there was that. The other thing mm. that was also quite surprising, and I had no idea where to even start, was, again, we'll talk about uh, it later, the KPIs and the metrics and stuff, but it was also digital sustainability, right? Mm. I got to this project where I was in a position where I had to, well, basically the ambition was to create the most sustainable digital presence for public service. What does it mean? I mean, where do you, what does it actually mean? Because usually you would think about packaging, you would think about like physical assets and compression and efficiency and you know things like that. But as a designer, what does it mean, sustainable UX? So, I mean, these are kind of uncharted territories and I like tapping into them because I have no idea where I am and I always feel lost first. And then I go getting a coffee and then I go get another one and then I just stop and think. And very often, eventually, um, some interesting ideas emerge. So I guess this is, these are the topics that really, that really keep me awake at night, Chris. What about okay. you, by the way? Well, I don't know enough to even form an opinion to keep awake at night, so... Let's do this. Let's dive in. So what we'll do is we'll unpack three topics on on this episode with you. And as you can see, Vitaly has spent a lot of time thinking about these things. I just want to ask a quick question because I hear an accent. Are you German? Well, this is um, this is quite a question because I actually grew up in Germany, indeed. Uh, but okay. I hardly speak German these days. Uh, I was born in Minsk, Belarus, and then my parents brought me in the year 1999. So, But mm. I did grow up. In Germany, indeed. Oh, you're good at this, Chris. <laughs> I'm just enjoying the accent, which I hear a couple different things in there. I'm like, okay, fascinating to me. Okay, so we'll talk about inclusive design and accessibility. We'll talk about digital sustainability and also then how to measure KPIs or something like that, effectiveness of design and UX. Because yeah. I think that's really important because today it seems to be really a conversation needs to happen about your role as a designer when it when you, when it comes to like actually moving the needle for your client and what we need to think about in terms of sustainability and who we're designing for. So let's mm-hmm. just start there first. Let's start with how do we make it a more inclusive web? Yeah, I think in many ways it all starts with including uh, a diverse group of people into testing or into design process. Mm-hmm. I think we very often we kind of try to rely on assumptions and hunches, which are nothing more than that, just hunches. And it was incredible, just absolutely incredible to see just how unreliable we as humans are in the way of we're thinking, in, you know, everything. Like even, like you know, these are things that really are kind of important to me, the close button. The close button, like a model window goes up and then there is this X in the right upper corner, right? It's incredibly confusing to so, so many people. And normally I would think, what? What are you talking about? This is just, uh, just a dialogue. It's like it's all over. We've been doing this like for what twenty years now. Uh, what's the problem? And when you start looking, people have such a tremendously different understanding. Different groups of people have very different understanding of what it represents. To some, this close mean close and apply. To others, it means close and dismiss. To others, it means clear. Right. To others, it means cancel. And then they get extremely confused when you also get the button, like the close in the right upper corner. Next mm. to it, you have done, the button saying done. And then at the bottom left, you have clear. And then, you know, on the bottom right, you have something like show 24 items, right? Which is like, what? What, what, what is this? How is this all working together? I learned, for example, this was a quite a surprising um, discovery for me. That X is extremely confusing. So if the best thing you can do is to just spell out what you mean, like just say save and exit in text or save, um, save and, uh, sorry, um, close and discard, right? Just to make it extremely explicit. Like that's one thing. The other thing is, of course, 
that we need to keep in mind. I mean, these are basic kind of usability things that you just discover when you actually start doing some testing. The other things, of course, are all around accessibility, screen reader users, people with disabilities, people who have mental health uh, issues, people who uh, happen to be um, you know, have ADHD, people who have dyslexia, left-handed people. There are so many very, very different groups of people. And I'm not saying that we need to just go ahead and create some sort of a checklist and then go all in like, okay, that group of people, what do we do there? And that group of people, what do we do there? Right. But I think that as we are creating more, um, I don't know, just using regular good principles of accessibility as ability, we kind of cater to everyone. We cannot really design something that's universal for everyone, really, but we can try. And that starts by simple things, color contrast, typography, font sizes, tap target sizes, right? If I see somebody who deliberately set the font size for their text at 12 pixels, or we will have a conversation. I am going to be very, very difficult. Uh, and I am going to try, I'll try my best to prove you wrong, right? But also kind of overall, when we look at all of this, it's like a lot of things that we need to just need to be aware. I'm not saying that there is one solution that just works. But for example, one thing that was really astonishing to me, there is a high, like, a high percentage of people who have a condition that's called dyscalculia. Dyscalculia is a problem of interpreting numbers. You would say, Oh, okay. Uh, interesting. So these are situations where you actually have issues remembering phone numbers, where you have issues remembering uh, your credit card number, right? If you ever wanted to memorize it or anything that's related to that, right? And so what happens is if you are designing, let's say, a fintech application, oh, you need to be aware of this. This is absolutely critical because approximately 3 to 10% of the entire global population encounter to some or other degree different um, kind of levels of uh, dyscalculia, right? Especially it could also be related to low um, numeracy, for example, right? So it's like a large, large, large area. And then, of course, you have things like colorblindness. And you would always think like colorblindness, it's just, you know, red-green problem. It isn't because as you grow older, for example, you actually start having massive different um, difficulties seeing the difference between blue and purple, right? And there is this huge, like, also when you throw brown into the mix with red and green, it becomes a mess as well. So I've been kind of putting this together, this kind of guide, and posting a lot of stuff on LinkedIn as well around that. It was just mind-blowing. Just all those things that are not really publicized because, you know, we are not thinking about, let's say, older adults when we're designing most of the time. And I think this is just the point of understanding all these limitations that we have and basically designing at best of our abilities to accommodate for everyone. Mm. Well, when you talk about doing testing and having a more diverse group in the testing, I've never gone through this process before. Can you tell me typically how that works and what you can learn and how you're supposed to observe? Yeah. So this, there are different flavors of that. But for example, for the European Parliament, what we end up doing is we, and it's kind of really ties in nicely into the conversation about how to measure design. Whenever I'm designing anything, I need to guarantee, even before I start designing a single pixel on the screen, I want to guarantee that it is going to work better than what we have right now. I do not want to waste anybody's time. I do not want to be in a position where I have to uh, kind of get into defensive mode saying, oh, uh, well, we tried our best, but we failed, right? Especially when you're dealing with a large organization or a large company. So for that, what, what we actually do is, before we even start designing, we think about, okay, let's create this kind of concepts and we can do around some concept testing. Uh, or also, we can also take uh, an existing website and create a baseline or status quo first. So for that, what we do is this. We take a website or product that we have, and then we basically ask ourselves, okay, what are some representative tasks, so-called top tasks that people are going to perform there? So if it's like a banking application, they're probably going to send money to someone. Maybe they're going to, you know, um, withdraw money or maybe they're going to uh, add money to the bank account, things like that. So we create something like 10 to 12 representative tasks, depending on the environment in which we are. And then usually you need at least 15 people, at least 15 people. 18 is better, but at least 15 after that you actually get to the stable results in terms of like statistically reliable data, right? So what you get is you bring 18 people, uh, ideally, 
and you give them these tasks, all 12 of them, and you spend maybe one hour of them. Some of my colleagues do it kind of unmoderated testing where they're not even present. They just send these tasks and there is a, basically a tool, like, you know, there are plenty of tools that can just record it for you and then they send you the result of that recording. But I like to be spending the time with that person, not like in a physical room, but usually on Zoom. So I basically give them tasks. I tell them, I'm not going to speak. I'm not going to observe. I'm, I'm just going to observe. I'm not going to tell you what to do. We're not testing you, of course. We're testing the website at this point. Feel free to stop. Feel free to fail. If you fail, I learn from that. That's very valuable. And they go. And what we do is we measure two things. First, we measure how much time they need to complete those tasks, right? And we measure if they're successful with it or not. You get 18 people, right, completing those tasks. You get to the point where you actually get an average time per task, right? For every task, you will get an average time that they need, right? And also get the success rate. Typically, what you will aim to achieve is at least 80% success rate. And then if you actually run it once, and then you run it with a new design six months later, right, or five months later after a lot, rollout, you bring the same segment of people, not the same people, but the same segment of people, 18 people, you give them 12 tasks, you measure time, you measure success rates. And you basically get, get before and after, and that's a clear indicator that something has either improved or not, right? So because you basically give them not just random tasks, but representative tasks, things that they are kind of critical, critical for that application for that website, right? And one thing that I think I really want to emphasize here, usually you get to the point where you ask people, hey, tell a speaker, speak through your experience, right? As you are doing these tasks. But that of course delays people because again, when they start speaking, this doesn't represent the reality. So they need more time to complete tasks and that's just not what people do in real life. So try to be as realistic as possible. And then you get basically the results. Just in the end, after a person has completed all the tasks, we basically do a debriefing, get some insights, take some notes, and we know what to do next time. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. So you're saying at least 18 people, give them 10 to 20, or I say 10 to 12 tasks. So you're going to time them on how long they take to do each task and then also to look at their success rate. So sometimes it could fail. And that would yep. be your baseline. And so then anything you do after that's going to be measured. So we got, we did worse, we did better, hopefully. Exactly. Experience and your instincts and your observations, it'll, it'll work better. Do you do heat yeah. mapping as well to kind of see where they dwell on? Yep, absolutely. Okay. So very often it depends, of course, very much on the project and, and what we want to achieve there. We could also look into things like how far people scroll. Um, sometimes it would even go to the point where if you want to explain something to them, even like if it's a landing page or so, uh, you just ask them, can you describe in your words what you, you know, what that product is like or what it is offering, right? I Another see. thing that we, we sometimes do, if you want to get sort of like a, an emotional understanding of how they kind of perceive the brand, like usually like measuring like the perception, brand perception is very difficult. Right. So what you can also ask is, can you describe, can you pick maybe five, seven adjectives that describe what you have experienced and the brand, right? Or the product. And they will tell you different things like different people. Like people are strange creatures. I mean, very strange creatures. Everybody comes with their own context, right? So they will pick very, very different things, but you can see the trend. So if somebody tells you uh, boring, dull, generic, that tells you how the brand is perceived. If, it's a, if they say shocking or bold or exciting, these are all slightly different ways of phrasing their level of excitement because again, they come from with a particular context, but you can get a sense about where you are on that spectrum, like extremely boring and neutral, which people usually cannot really connect emotionally with, or extremely exciting and bold and innovative and whatever, right? So that's kind of the other side of the spectrum. With you spending as much time as you have in in the web design space, uh, I think also referred to as product design, UX design, uh, and, and now I saw also on your LinkedIn, it says surface designer. So you've done this for a long time, basically. What are, are there any like tips you can give someone who's like, okay, you know what? I don't have the time or the resources to run multiple tests with that many people. Is there a shorthand version where like, you know, never do this, always do this, and uh, sometimes do this? 
Yeah, so I think that I, fortunately there is a, I mean, the EX community is just incredibly, like, incredible on, um, well, on LinkedIn and I don't know, where are people these days? I think mm-hmm. LinkedIn, I guess, to some degree at least. Yeah. Uh, so there are plenty, like there is no shortage in templates. We always need to take templates with a bit of, you know, grain of salt because again, it needs to be kind of customized for whatever your needs are, I think. But in general, you know, if there is this almost like unwritten rule. And I think that this is something that we often forget. Like even if you just take five people, five users and speak with them about whatever they're going with, like what are, what are they, do they encounter any issues? Is everything clear? Is, you know, things like that, right? Just like try to find any problems, any issues, any pain points that they have. Just five people. You don't need a lot of time. I think that very often we think that this is going to take an incredible amount of time. This is going to be extremely expensive. This is going to delay the project. This is going to derail our commitments. Not necessarily. You just bring five people in the room or you know, in a Zoom room. You have a conversation and you will find incredible insights already. So just start with that. Then once you have that in mind, what you can do is just you know, run a couple of you know, one-on-one is ability testing where you start giving people tasks to see how they're performing those tasks. And as they do, you can bring up your questions and try to figure out what exactly was the issue. But for that, you need to, of course, understand what your environment is and what your product is, what your service is, and so on. And what things are important. You might want to break it down by different groups of people who are using the service or using the site, right? And then kind of test that individually. Usually, the good layer or good level that you want to achieve is when you have this kind of end-to-end testing. Somebody just lands on the product, they go for onboarding, eventually they have to do some tasks to get things done, and then eventually they maybe upgrade. Right? This could be like end-to-end testing. But then if you have, let's say, something very specific that you've been working on last quarter, like search, well, then you go in and you start looking, okay, let me come up with 10, 12 tasks related specifically for search, different types of searches with filters, without filters, with sorting, without sorting. And then you see if this is working. This doesn't have to take a lot of time, right? I know five people already, you will get incredible insights. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to our conversation. You mentioned something about not just adults, but adults run a spectrum. So there could be different physical accessibility issues as you get older. As some people might have dyslexia or maybe are colorblind. And so that's going to affect the design. So in, in trying to design something that's more accessible, do you have to build a bunch of different versions of the site or you just design for the one that works for everybody and that's the one that gets used? Yeah, I think that it's a very dangerous part to create multiple websites or multiple versions because very often what happens is um, people don't necessarily associate themselves with a particular group and you need to speak to that group mm-hmm. in some way, right? Of course, you could have the toggles between dark mode and light mode and high contrast mode and so on. But usually, uh, very often what, 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 what you get is that if you create something that's just 
accessible out of the box, like large font sizes, color contrast, just simple things. I mean, things that we've been speaking about for 20 years, I guess, um, you'll be okay, right? It's just if you're working in a specific environment where you actually, again, like fintech, right? There you need to be very, very careful of how you design things. When you think about something like, um, you know, just mobile interfaces, where to put the menu and how to use it, like very often what you will get is, for example, like really important buttons that are all of a sudden hidden, right? Or really important content that is hidden and people experience problems finding them. So if you have something that's really important, just don't hide it, right? There are basically some relatively simple and straightforward rules around accessibility that are not, it's, it's not like a magic science. It is complicated, right? And if you mm. want to, let's say, bring accessibility to a not accessible or inaccessible product, oh, this is going to take an incredible amount of time and effort. But even if you look at accessibility, accessibility is extremely exciting. Like one of the greatest examples for me is the Wise, the bank, a Wise Bank redesign or rebrand, I should say, right? They went all in accessibility, but it's bold, it's on brand, it's strong, it's huge, it has a point of view, it's authentic, it's, it's extremely attractive and it's ex- extremely attractive because they actually thought about accessibility from the very start. So it's not like we, it's not like it's, you know, that boring part that is a part of the job. No, this can be extremely exciting to, and, and again, don't forget that it makes it accessible to so many people who are potentially all your customers. That's just not something we should be forgetting. Mm. Okay. I'm curious, and I'm throwing you a curveball here. In the age of AI, do you see a future where oh. okay, it could take something that you've done, where you've labeled it a certain way, you've given it certain rules, that depending on who shows up, it creates a version of the site just for them. Not just the way it looks, but even the offers and the copies written differently. So it's hyper-targeted, super narrow niche. What do you think about that? Well, this is an interesting future we're talking about here. I think, you know what, Chris? I wouldn't mind that at all, as long as people who are coming to that site or using the service or product can get their work done fast, right? And understand what is going on and it's all clear. I think, hmm, I think we can still create experiences that are pretty much accommodating for a vast majority of people. I don't know if we need to go that route to really hyper-customize, hyper-personalize, mm-hmm. because at some point you also get to the situation where the system maybe understands the human better than the human does himself or herself. So it becomes a little bit you know, freaky, a little bit dangerous in a way, yeah. right? And I think it's, it might not be necessary at times. Uh, what is, however, necessary, I think, is just... Simple, humane things. This is also what I'm missing. I mean, we have conversations about AI, and of course AI is extremely important, and of course this is the future, and of course we need to understand as designers what to do with it, and of course we probably shouldn't be afraid of it, I think. Well, let's see what we'll be, we'll know in a couple of years, I'm sure. But I also miss humane touch. I mean, I don't know about you, and I don't know about everyone who is going to watch or listen to to this later. Sometimes I can smell... ChatGPT text. I can just, I don't know. I just feel like there is something ChatGPT-ish in it. Yeah. It's, it's, I cannot point the finger. It's maybe like, you know, the bold and then you have the text and then bold and then you have a bit of text as well. And it's a little bit too perfect and it's a bit too clean in a way, too sterile in some way. That's not how the yeah. world is. The world is messy and complex and people make mistakes and typos. And I want to see typos. I want to see typos everywhere. I mean, it's not maybe in formal documents, but I want people to be just respectful and kind and sometimes forget about things and sometimes remember things and sometimes be inconsistent. We do not have to have 100% consistent experiences just for the sake of being consistent. Just make me, I don't know, surprised or smile Mm. or worried about that footer that is not aligned. That's okay. That's the web. We can always interact and play and change and experiment. You cited on your keynote talk a couple of things that they had done. One was about putting some funny copy into the fine print, the terms and conditions. I thought that was pretty hilarious because it's like you're you're giving away your soul, your firstborn to this company, and they put it in there just to show you people that they don't read it. But there was one that was pretty funny because you're like they designed something to annoy and irritate 
people because of, they want to increase dwell time. They put a fake hair. So people yeah. are like swiping, trying to get rid of it and they can't get rid of it. And they're like, oh yeah, you guys got me. What, yeah, what are your th- thoughts th- on this is, this those is kinds th- of things? Yeah, but this is definitely not what I would love to see more on the web. Right? <laughs> so there is of course place for experimentation. Okay. And yeah. well, there is actually like, I think that I know we, we speak a lot about things looking generic and looking the same. And this is kind of, this has been ongoing you know, conversation for years yeah. now. But I think that there has been a lot of innovation. I see incredible portfolios, like really incredible work happening as well. We shouldn't forget that. We shouldn't just dismiss, oh, everything looks the same. Well, not everything looks the same. A lot of stuff looks the same, but not everything. Of course, what I do not want is that everything looks the same, like, like that thing that you just mentioned, because it's just dishonest. It's just not how I would like things to be in a way. It's like there is no point in, I mean, there is financial benefit, I'm sure, in decepting, being deceptive, having all kinds of deceptive patterns. But, you know, this is kind of a conversation where I think that maybe at some point, I think that there are some governments around the world that are actually getting and stepping into it. Like in India, I think they have now established some uh, guidelines or is trying to establish some guidelines and rules and legislation against deceptive patterns, right? Um, Which I think is, not necessarily a bad idea. I think it's actually a good idea. Um, I would love to be just to see people really respect it. I think this is such a such a rarity these days. Just to come to a website and feel like, oh, they actually respect me. Because we usually just throw things at people without even considering them. Mm-hmm. From newsletters to pop-ups to everything. Right. I think once you do that, once you actually get to the point where somebody feels valued oh, they will move mountains for you. They will be on your side and they will pay even if you make it very difficult for them to pay, right? But we don't think about that that much. We usually play a short-term goal uh, game, Mm. right? Although I think, well, my life has always been playing a long-term game. Let me ask you this before we move on to the second of our topics here. I I see, um, I guess there are ads at the bottom of some of the news feeds that I get. And they'll start something with a super clickbaity headline like, um, you won't believe how this child star turned out. And they show that star like, is that how they turned out? I don't know. So then you click on that and then you have to dive through all these things. Where you need to click on is super hidden. All the ads are designed to look like real buttons and navigation, but they'll show you 35 images before the one that you're supposed to see. Hot take on that. Well, this is just horrible. I mean, frankly, I think... Yeah, I think so. Every now and again, I would be also in the same position where I look and I think, okay, um, we're all talking about hooks, right? We're all yeah. talking about, you know, how to get people to scroll, how to get people to swipe. And yeah, I understand the economics behind that. I understand why many companies are doing that. But again, for me, I don't know, I, I want to be in a position where I can remember a website or remember somebody in a positive light, Right? I don't want to feel tricked in, a, in some way. So if you are, say, publishing articles and, you know, on, a, on your feed and it's all full of those kind of things, I will find it very, very difficult to trust you like on a personal level. Maybe you will also post some other useful content. That's fine, right? But I will have a very strong feeling mm, to trust you and trust your words. I would also have a very a hard time... I don't know, maybe that's me, but I would have a very hard time promoting you or helping you out in some way. Because I don't feel like this is, this is, bring, this brings anybody forward. This is not helpful for anybody. So you can, sure, you can generate some random clicks, but why? I mean, this is always a question for me. Whenever I see things like that, I'm just wondering. So I would never ever buy anything from anybody who just does that all the time. Right? I would never buy anything from a company uh, or subscribe to a premium whatever right? Uh, <laughs> if, for those kind of things. But if you go to extremes to give me something that I find valuable, again, as, as I said, I would probably go to do whatever I can do to support and buy everything that you produce. Like Again, uh, I, I'm not trying to be difficult here, but Chris, you're doing an incredible work at this because you really give so much to people. Right? And then people, of course, want to give back to you. And this is normal. This is just human nature. And this is how everything should be. This is the economics of good, I think. And there is no need to pollute it with some crap. I think the, the, they're not trying to sell your product or service. I think they're just selling ad space. So the more they get you, 
click oh, on yeah. the next page, reload, and there's three ads, inline ads there. You're like, okay. Oh, I will go to things? extremes to set up my ad blockers to make sure that they don't see any of that. Mm. And I mm. will not have any bad conscience around that at all. Unless okay. I, if I, even if I go to that uh, kind of article or so. In <laughs> Maybe that's revealing a little bit about my dark nature, <laughs> wanting to see how things turned out for that child star. They got me, they got the hook in me, but I realized what's happening. Okay, let's move on to an idea that I'd not heard before as it relates to digital experiences. What the heck do you mean digital sustainability? There's no physical thing, like we're not sourcing things. Uh, we're not recycling them or upcycling. How do we make yeah. things that are more sustainable in the digital sphere? Yeah, this was also a fascinating thing to me because this is something that I've been telling quite a bit a lot. And I've been working with my colleague, Jerry McGovern, uh, for the European Parliament. And in general, this is, this is kind of really this idea of, um, you know, we are consuming so much energy, so much water, so much everything. And very often it's just one off. Like whenever you get, let's say, you know, I'm not even talking just about carbon, but just in general about so many things that we just take and we buy and we use once and then it just sits somewhere, right? Or, you know, this idea of repurpose, uh, re, uh, rebuying every like two, three, four, maybe even every year, a new laptop, a new phone and things like that, right? And there are things that we just don't need. Like, for example, if I think about delivery, like if I think about Amazon Prime, you can get anything delivered to you within what? One hour, two hours, one day? I don't know what it's like now, right? I think, I don't really need it. I mean, maybe we should actually, instead of saying, you know, um, get it faster, get it in the next 12 hours or six hours, say, hmm, uh, if you don't have, if you're not in a hurry, uh, maybe we can deliver to you within six days, but you would pay less. I, I don't rush. That's okay. It doesn't have to be delivered to me to two in two days or three days. That's okay. So maybe we can actually slow down people instead of encouraging them to do more, right? I would be willing to even pay more if, they, if it was kind of more sustainable packaging potentially, right? So things like that could work. But on the other hand, what it ultimately goes to, like when you're thinking about designing those experiences, I think it's all about not having people wasting their time and their resources. Obviously, now that we're uh, sitting here, right, and maybe, you know, people who are going to watch or listen to this later, right, um, if you are, let's say, coming to a website, a relatively complex website, and you need to spend something within five to ten minutes to do your thing, whatever that thing is, that's a waste. Well, not only is it a waste of your lifetime, right, uh, also, it's a waste of resources, be it energy, be it, you know, power, be it water, be it everything, right? So maybe instead of making things more polluted and, you know, blinking things all over the place, especially again, you know, sure, you can do that for public services because, you know, this is how it's supposed to be, it's supposed to work, but also for any kind of digital product, just help people get the results faster. And that requires testing, right? So if you can get, like, one thing that's really been annoying me, for a long time now, we get to this, we kind of got to this concept, like whenever you have a search box, you type something in the search box, you get suggestions, and then you click on the search button, then you get search results page. And then that search results page has links to pages. Why? That's just, that's just why. If aliens ever came to this planet, they'd be very confused why the hell we're doing this. Wouldn't it be better, especially with the wonderful capabilities of AI, that we say, uh, well, start typing, but as you type, I'm not going to give you keyword suggestions. I'm going to drive you straight to categories that you can jump to without seeing search results page at all. And here are some filters you can jump in and click right away. So that list gets updated immediately. You don't even have to go to search results pages. Why would you think about going to a search results page to then click through pages that are listed there? Just go straight to results and filter and maybe navigate between different tabs, between images and photos and videos and whatnot, right? Those kind of things. That would be helping people so much better to actually get the results faster. Or another idea, and this is kind of the, fun, the probably like one of the most impactful ones. Like, you know, very often people are watching streams online, like on YouTube and whatnot, right? But what I miss on YouTube is the option to just have audio only. Like I might be watching a documentary, maybe I'm cooking or whatever. I'm not even looking at the screen, but instead I'm, it's streaming to me at 4K and I don't need that. So why, why do we waste, we waste so many things. Like we don't even think about this. 
So having option like audio only would be reducing this waste significantly without any cost because you're not washing anyway. So many things like that are kind of the part of design and the part of sustainability, of course, but very often they're just not thought through, I guess. Uh, the final one I'm really, really kind of thinking, we, we need to think about those things, is that we often have auto-save, but we never have auto-delete, right? Wouldn't it be nice to say, if nobody has accessed this page or this article in the last two years, automatically delete it, right? Do we need to store everything that we are producing for eternity? I don't think so. So, because every, eventually it has to be stored somewhere, right? And that also has other costs related to that. So, yeah, um, this has been on my mind for a lot lately. Well, I'm surprised you didn't mention this one thing about just like energy use, like designing sites to use more black. So yeah, that yeah, yeah, the that's energy for sure. that's used yeah. to display generate heat using energy, but maybe that's really low-hanging fruit. You talked about number of clicks and actions that somebody has to take and getting that down to, to one or to zero or something like that. You talked about the designer's role in working with their physical partners to like, what is the rush? Why do we need to get this so fast? And, and I, I think Amazon does do this now where they say, if you're willing to wait a couple of days so that we can not rush through this process and ship things in one box, and be more efficient with grouping packages together, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we'll give you store credit for something. I'm seeing mm -hmm. this. So they are, there's somebody like you on the other side thinking mm -hmm. these things through. We don't need it today. We don't even need it two days. You're right. There's lots of things like, I'll read that book when it gets here. Whenever it gets here, it's okay. Yeah, so I absolutely agree with that. I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that, but wow, that's, uh, that yes. makes me hopeful, I think. So that's, yes. Yes, because yes. again, it's like there are many things that we just, we, I mean, we're always kind of obsessed with efficiency and speed. And very often, you know, just calm down, just go get a coffee. And there is no need to be efficient all the time. You know, mm. there are people, there are neighbors, there are friends, there are dogs, there are cats. Just, that's okay. Just waste time. This is your lifetime. Make the best out of it. You don't have to be efficient all the time. I think YouTube has also addressed the whole audio only uh, with a premium account. I forget what they call it now. Uh, it used mm. to be called YouTube Red. And now, now you can do audio only. It's less on the bandwidth. It's using less energy and your phone saves your battery from mm. wear and tear. So there's lots of things that are going on there. And you're absolutely right. Most of the times, people just want to listen. And and I, I know this is bad for me to say as a creator, but I notice sometimes when I'm watching a YouTube video, I'll doze off, but they keep playing more and more videos, even though the one I watched is already done. So it's That's bad right. for us creators. But it's better for the planet if they just stopped and said, hey, are you still there? Uh, do you really want to look at this? And otherwise, we'll stop showing you more videos. So That's right. You're, you're a very thoughtful, conscientious guy who has a philosophy on all this stuff, and I love that. And I'm glad there's somebody like you in the world to make sure the, the other people who aren't so, so thoughtful have a voice to kind of like, okay. Oh, no, no, Chris. I'm just being difficult most of the time. I'm just being <laughs> difficult to most people. That's all I am. <laughs> I love it. But you do it with a sense of humor too. So it's, it's, it's awesome. Okay. Now we're going to land the plane. We got to get to the most important part here, which is to, to make designers accountable for things and also to give them credit for things that they do. So in web, especially maybe with design and branding, it's a little harder to measure, but how do we make it so that we can measure if it's effective, if it's intelligent, if it's efficient or whatever, how do we measure this stuff when it comes to design and UX? Yeah, I think that's very much related to a couple of things. First of all, what we need to understand is, and this is something that has been kind of discussed quite heavily over the last couple of months as well, uh, this idea that we as designers, right, we often see on LinkedIn and Twitter and everywhere, we see these diagrams where UX is in the middle of everything. UX is that central thing that connects the business, the technology, the design, the everything, which is most of the time not true at all because most companies don't see it this way. So we need to understand that when we actually, and this is kind of at least the position in which I am, it might be that of course some of the listeners would be in a different position. I always feel like I have to show my value. I, I feel like every time I walk in a big room with a lot of people in there uh, who happen to be not designers, right? Um, they don't really trust me and not in a bad way like, oh, who is this weird person coming in now? But they don't understand exactly why I do what I do and how I do those things. And in the same way, I don't understand how 
You know, people who take care of finances do their thing. I don't know that either. So I shouldn't expect them to understand how I work. But then when I start talking about usability, accessibility, inclusive design, white space, typography, and branding and colors, and they have no understanding of that at all. And again, they don't have to. But still, right. I have to show my value, right? And so the, the thing that we're trying to do establish this sort of connection between what the business wants and what the, we as designers want. So this looks very much similar to if somebody ever heard of it, opportunity trees or KPI trees. If you ever worked with somebody from sales or marketing, uh, you will probably have heard about KPI trees. And the idea behind those KPI trees is that all the way on the top, you have the business goal. For example, for that quarter, we're going to work on that thing. Our goal is to boost our subscribers uh, by the end of 2023 or 2024, right? And so, all right, so you get this big, 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 very fluffy and very unconcrete goal. And at the bottom, you're thinking, okay, so how would I do that? So we have these goals and we have a couple of ideas. We know that there are certain things that are not working well. There are these other reasons that we learn why people are abandoning us. This is why churn rate happens and uh, so is so high. Um, this is why people sign up. That's what we also learned in our user research. So Maybe we should do this, 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 and this. A couple of features, a couple of changes, and then we can bring them on. Right? And you can say, oh, excellent. I can just go ahead and start designing. But I wouldn't do that. What I try to create is sort of a path, and it's a bit difficult to visualize, but you basically have your design initiatives, your design ideas at the bottom. At the very top, you have the business goals. And what I first do is for each of those ideas that we have, I need to define metrics that are going to move, kind of going to be an indicator that something has changed. Now, if I want, let's say, just to make it a bit more concrete, if I want to say people to be using our uh, filters more, I can regroup filters, I can refine filters, I can add autocomplete for filters, I can do things with filters. But if all of those things that I'm suggesting are effective, there must be a way to measure it. There must be a way that it's going to propagate all the way to impact business. Because ultimately, I'm serving, or trying to solve, rather, a business goal. So I'm trying to create this connection between what I have all the way on the top in the business side, what I'm creating here at the bottom line with my activities. So that means I have some ideas. I find ways of how to measure them, right? Then I give that, I hand it over to engineers so they know what they need to track. And then as we keep going and we're propagating from the bottom all the way to the top, you have this and you bring developers and you bring engineers and you bring PM, you bring business people on board. And this is kind of one of the wonderful artifacts that explains to everyone what the hell we're working on towards that goal and why. That creates an incredible sense of alignment as well, right? And I can also share it with the audience if I can create like a PDF or whatever to kind of explain what it looks mm -hmm. like, of course. Right? But the idea is that if you have a design A and you have a design B, because design is not art and it solves a particular problem, we should be able to measure how well design A does the job and how well the design B takes the job. And I'm not talking about A-B testing. It could be a part of that, but it doesn't have to be. You can just go ahead and say, we're working on those features, we're going to ship them, and then we're going to measure how successful they are by tracking these metrics. And these things, uh, or these metrics, is something that we call then design KPIs. So, for example, just to make it very, very clear, sorry for a very long answer, if you are working on search, right, uh, usually, you know, your quality of work will be measured by how up-to-date your search engine is, which is absolutely irrelevant for most users. But if you want to track the quality of search, we need to understand what that represents or what that means. So, to us, you know, to measure search, we go and take maybe top 100 queries, search queries that came our way last year or last six months, whatever. Then we'll run a check and test, okay, if we're searching for those queries, what is showing up? Most people will click on the top five results, right? This is, they get like around 60 to 80% of the, all the clicks. So we get this free results for each query from top 100. With that, we then go to our editors who are responsible for individual domains and we say, hey, uh, we see people actually asking or looking for this. What would be representative canonical pages that should show up when people are searching for them? So they gave us a list. And then we do the mapping between what we have and what we should have. And you get a percentage out of that. What is the overlap score between them? And you have maybe 
And then you do your improvements. And if two, three, four, five months later, you run the same test, you take top 100, you go to a tutorial, you get your current and you match. Well, if it gets better, then it's clearly an improvement. And, and that's important, you can use it really, really well to indicate the impact that you or your team have produced, right? It's a very clear connection right there, right? And this is something you can definitely use in order to show that impact that you have not only on search, but also on business, because ultimately this will also bring other metrics up, like for example, the number of searches, right? Or findability of content. So all of this is framing around this idea of measure what you are proposing and suggesting before you actually, or start at least thinking about measurement before you even design it. I think in your world, that's a pretty common, well-accepted practice outside of web design. It feels like we get a little fuzzy with what it is we're trying to do. It's that lack of accountability that we we thrive in because it's like, I, I, I can guarantee those results. And the question is, then why are you doing this? Why did you accept money to do something that you're not sure that you can do? Mm. So it's very, very questionable. Um, yeah. let, let's talk about this a little bit more here. When, when you have a success, there's a thousand people who raise their hand and say, well, it was because of what I did. The copywriter will say, because it was great copywriting. And then the person who designed it will say, well, it's because of me. Or somebody else who's like the engineer was like, no, no, because of this. How do you account for that? Because there's this expression. The expression is um, success has many fathers, failure has one mother. So when it's successful and the, and the business goal, the global business objective is being met to sell more products, services, units, or something, increase subscriptions, there's a lot of things that go into that. How do you know it's what that one or, or that group of people did versus what somebody else says? Because this happens to us in the real world. Yeah, so there are two types to, to accommodate for that. There are two types of testing. Okay. On the one hand, you have this end-to-end testing, which covers everything. So if you want to get to the goal, you run some tests, you want to, let's say, improve success rate, or you want to improve your subscription. If that goal is reached, that's great. But you cannot really point to that person was responsible for that, or that department was responsible for that. But what you can do, because you establish metrics for everything that you're working on, or everything that design teams are working on, you can say, okay, this has improved. This has improved. This has not improved. Hmm. Well, if this has not improved, that surely this has not contributed. So those things have improved, though. Okay. So did they actually improve dramatically or slowly, or was it kind of similar? Do they keep improving? Was it just a variance in statistics? So if you actually run the test again, uh, it's very different again. So you can actually see that okay, there are some branches that are stronger or thicker in that tree. You can almost kind of accommodate for that or kind of see that. But of course, if you have a very large team with, I don't know, dozens or even hundreds of designers, right? Or, you know, engineers, then you get to the, to the point where it will be quite difficult. Then you need to test a lot locally. Meaning if you're, let's say, working on search, right? You want to search, like really test things within search rather than across the entire product. So, but it kind of, you know, it's sometimes it's not really necessary to really say, okay, I did this or that team has done it. Mm. Uh, different teams can claim success because it's their shared success. They all contributed to it together. So, however, I would say this is something that I learned the hard way, I think. As a designer, I highly encourage you, well, everyone who is going to listen to this, have a running document which documents all your successes and accomplishments like this. And trust me, once you get to the to this habit of measuring what you're doing, or oh, you will have a wonderful set of things that you will be mentioning in your next negotiation interview, right? Or one-on-one. Oh, this will be very, very helpful. So uh, again, showing the value of your work is something that's going to drive you, you know, hopefully to, you know, um, a higher salary and a better position in the company. Okay, I have one one last follow up question, and I realize we're almost out of time here. Actually, oh we're no, we could go like this forever. <laughs> I know you can, but my brain's about to explode. <laughs> Let me ask you this question: What are some things we need to avoid when we're running these these tests, or to how we measure? Like, what can give us false positives? Yeah, so I think the most important part is to avoid biases. Uh, very often, it would be basically, mm-hmm. you know, if you're not with research, you always can be 
kind of game a little bit. So you can always ask yeah. the questions where you want to get the right, the answer that you actually need. And you will find this every now and again in testing as well. This is why when we do testing, we always broadcast it. So usually it would be happening on Zoom, but then there would also be another Zoom room, which or YouTube, private YouTube, um, where it's going to be screened towards so the entire organization can watch it. Right. So other designers can watch it or people who are working on the product can watch it. But in the end, yeah, you need to be very careful about having at least a little bit of understanding about what kind of questions you should be asking and what not. Typical thing is that whenever you are running your research, you should not ask close-ended questions like, did you enjoy that experience? Right? Uh, did you find what you're looking for? Were you always finding what you're looking for? Because it kind of almost implies the answer and people are falling into right. the trap or giving you the answer that you want to hear. So you need to be very careful there. On the other hand, when it comes to the group of people that they're going to bring in, right? they really should be diverse. So if you get to the point where you get one specific segment, like people who just happen to be one small portion of your user base, your data, your results will be skewed. So you have to do quite a lot of due diligence and homework to make sure that people that you bring to testing, and even if it's, again, a small test, right, with five people or 12 people, 18 people, right, that they are representative of your user base, right? That's the hard work. So you have to be quite careful there uh, because you really need uh, need that in order to get decent results. Okay, I follow. So you want to ask questions that are not leading, that are neutral, because otherwise they'll just say, yes, I loved it. You want to make sure the people that you invite in as your test group are diverse and representative of the types of users who are actually going to use it. And the thing that you talked about broadcasting, I didn't understand like why you want to broadcast a whole company Zoom. Oh, I, yeah, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I got lost in that sauce. Yeah, so the reason why we're broadcasting is because we want it to be uh, visible to everyone. So other designers or our other researchers can actually tune in and listen or watch of you know how they being product their product is uh, performing, right? It's also great for designers to see how their work is being used, right? It's also great for engineers to see how their work is being used, right? But also it's great for other people in the company to see how the questions are being asked. I think it's very important because if you just get a report like a PDF deck saying like, oh, we learned that 50% of people cannot find things and so on. They will have a motivation to actually look in and see, is it like real or is it, you know, not quite real? So we always try to broadcast and announce it ahead of time. So people who want to tune in and who want to follow along, even if it's like, you know, one of the sessions or two of the sessions, they kind of can do that and see how a particular feature that they maybe have been working on recently, right, uh, works with real people. Makes sense now. Thanks for clearing that up. So you want to be mm-hmm. transparent so that everybody buys into the results because we know that results can be biased. And so there's no point in doing these tests if the people who matter are like, well, I don't trust the results. I'm going to do my own exactly. ways. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that I wanted to add uh, on top of that is that one thing that I think is really quite critical is that you, when you're actually selecting those tasks that you give to people, that they are not skewed either. Because again, if you are... You know, if you give them super simple tasks that they can complete within, I don't know, 15 seconds or so, that's not testing anything. It just gives you the number that you want. Mm -hmm. So again, those tasks and everything that you're working on, this needs to be crucial for business. So business needs to care about it. Like usually you would have this North Star metrics that every company has. Airbnbs would have something like the number of nights that a person is booking for staying with Airbnb, right? This is a very important number. The higher it is, the better the outcome will be, the better the revenue is, right? Um, so those things have to matter to business as well. It cannot be just something that we, like those tasks that we give that are just random, right? They need to be somehow best connected to business. Mm-hmm. Okay. You mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned that uh, you, you may have a PDF resource for people because there's a lot of visual things that you may be referencing that somebody who's listening is like, I don't get it. So make sure you check the show notes, everybody. If you're watching this, we'll, we'll include it in the description as well. But I would just want to encourage you to just Google him, uh, search on YouTube because he's got a bunch of talks. His name is Vitaly Friedman. And among many things, he's a web designer from the early 90s, pre, pre-internet, I believe. He's been experimenting with web, it seems like his entire career. He's self-taught and he has an interesting background 
is it in mathematics and computer science? Yeah, so I, uh, yeah, I got... Which will explain really, a couple of things I, about his brain. Yes, yes I, I got very much obsessed with PHP and computer science <laughs> and mathematics and linear algebra when I was growing up. So this was uh, my big excitement back in the day. I also, mm. by the way, just um, uh, over the last couple of years, I kind of tried to put a lot of things that we've been discussing today uh, in this new thing that we call smart interface design patterns, which is all like a... Uh, video course and training and stuff like that. And this is always fun. So if you are interested, you can also find some things around that. It's smart interface design patterns. Okay, so you have a course to teach what you've been talking about? Yeah. How much is that course and where can we find it? Uh, it's not expensive. It had to be affordable. I think it's like $250, $275 oh. or something. Oh, super affordable. So for those of you who could process all the things that Vitaly's been talking about and are excited about learning more, I look, the easy thing is go watch some of his YouTube videos where he's doing keynotes. He's pointing out a lot of the user, user experience design, user interface design problems. And I think you're going to really enjoy his sense of humor and how he presents things. We're just getting a little glimpse into his brain. So his course, what is your course called again? It's Smart Interface Design Patterns. Smart interface design patterns. It's only 250 bucks. We'll include some kind of code if you use it. Uh, you'll save a few bucks here and there, but you also support a pretty awesome human being. Oh, you're being very kind, Chris. Yeah, you're also the co founder. It's a Smashing Magazine. Yeah, it's been around for like 17 years now. Oh my God. Wow. And you do events and workshops and in person stuff, right? Yes, yes, we do. Yes. We have a, a couple of things coming up also next year. So if you want to take a look at Smashing Conf or Smashing magazine that's that's a place where you'll find it and oh my god this is going to be quite an exciting year are you looking forward to the next year chris absolutely this will be the best year ever right i believe so i believe so yeah it has to it has to i mean come on <laughs> what else what a choice do we have <laughs> yeah, yeah pretty much <laughs> Can't go backwards yeah so direct them to your url where, where do they need to go to find out more information about this course that you put together oh yeah if you go it's just google smart interface design patterns.com or smartinterfacesdesignpatterns.com in the browser, or I think SIDP, I think. If I set up a redirect, that would be nice, but you know, I'm very <laughs> chaotic and stuff. So if you just look for Smart Interface Design Patterns, you will find uh, the video course. It has a lot of recipes. Mm. Okay, it's smartinterfacedesignpatterns.com. My guest has been Vitaly Friedman. Thank you very much for doing this with us. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. I have to probably re-listen to some of this a couple more times before I can process everything. Full transparency. It was a lot for me to like absorb, but it's been it's been beautiful. It's, it's been too long since you and I have talked. So I hope it's not the same amount of time next time. I'll, I hope to see you in, in Germany at some point in the near future. Oh yes, I, I would love, I would love that. And uh, thank you so much for having me and uh, enjoy everyone. Most importantly, just slow down and don't work that much. There it is. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. My name is Vitaly Friedman, and you're listening to The Future. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Stuart Schuster. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by reviewing and rating our show on Apple Podcasts. It will help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.